Let's go back to the $150,000 ransom demand. We're always taught to look for the win-win solution, to accommodate, to be reasonable. So what's the win-win here? What's the compromise? The traditional negotiating logic that's drilled into us from an early age, the kind that exalts compromises, says, let's just split the difference and offer them 75K, then everyone's happy. No, just simply no. The win-win mindset pushed by so many negotiation experts is usually ineffective and often disastrous. At best, it satisfies neither side. And if you employ it with a counterpart who has a win-lose approach, you're setting yourself up to be swindled. You have to get rid of that naivete because compromise, splitting the difference, can lead to terrible outcomes. Compromise is often a bad deal and a key theme is that no deal is better than a bad deal. Even in a kidnapping, yes, a bad deal in a kidnapping is where someone pays and no one comes out. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, episode 15. I'm Jason, here with Emily, and our guest today is an old friend, Chris Voss, the former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, author of the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, founder of the Black Swan Group, and currently the negotiations expert on Masterclass. Fun fact, he was my negotiations professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business in 2010. And since that class, I've said unequivocally that I use the lessons he taught me every single day of my life. They're ingrained in my head like math and English. I cannot recommend his lessons, his book, his classes strongly enough, and it's an honor to have him on the show. Chris, thanks for joining us. Man, it is so cool to be on with you, with both of you guys. You know, and I don't know, as we, we talk about this, you know, whether or not we bring any skeletons out of the closet at any point in time, like... Everything's fair. About, Everything's fair you, game. You know, we, you we, drinking CEOs under the table on my boat, calling them names. We don't need to go there, Chris. We talked about this. <laughs> you know, about people being banned from re-entry into this country because they flirted with the wrong guy. You know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff out there. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's nice to have friends that know your past, I guess, huh? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So to dig in a little bit more. So you have this, this big resume now. I mean, you're the negotiation guy. I'll say it for you. But I'd like to go back to the mean streets of Kansas City. You started your career in law enforcement as a cop. What, what drove you to a life of service? Yeah, well, somewhere in my bones, I wanted to do good and have a lot of fun. You don't have to make a lot of money while you're doing that because life is so rewarding. I, you know, if you pick a profession that subsequently gives you good dollars, then cool. But, you know, I wanted to do good and have a lot of fun. And when it, it's going to sound stupid, but when I was a teenager, before I even knew I wanted to be in law enforcement, I saw a movie about two cops in New York City called The Super Cops. And it was a true story about two guys that were ridiculously creative. They did a lot of good and they had a ball doing it. Now, another thing I didn't realize at the time, they didn't particularly listen to their supervisors ever. <laughs> and I, I, not only have I been guilty of that, but, you know, you guys know my son, Brandon, he runs my company now. You know, I say to a lot of people, he's so much like me, I feel bad for both of us. Like he wants to do his own thing and not listen to what me, I'm technically his boss, tells him what to do. And so much so that I, I actually I sent a text message to my old boss, Gary Nessner, probably about three, four months ago. And I said, you know, my son is just like me. I owe you an apology. 
<laughs> but it was, you know, it was really about doing really well. You know, there's nothing wrong with helping people. And you can you can have a great life and be creative and be true to yourself and and help people out at the same time. And that all that just always mattered to me. So you saw a movie. You're not the first person we've had on this show who said, I saw a movie and I was inspired to go do this or that, right? It's it's kind of cool to see. And what else would you have done then at that time? I mean, what like what else were you considering but other than than becoming a cop? I, you know, I don't know that I ever had thought about doing anything else for a living before that. I mean, you know, you kind of, I was 16 when I saw it. So, you know, I don't know how much specificity, if you will, you know, some kids, maybe at that, that young age, they, uh, they start thinking about what they want to do for a living. I don't know what the percentages are in the FBI. Nearly everybody is a second career professional. They started out doing something else. They had some other goal in mind. You know, they got into it in their 20s and it just didn't it didn't quite fit. The fit wasn't quite there. And they found their way into the FBI. So in my world in the FBI, everybody was a second career professional. Everybody started out doing something else. I don't know what the percentages are. None of us, you know, maybe five percent of us wanted to be FBI agents. Like I, one, one guy that I was uh, an agent with was a school teacher, but we find, you know, you find your way, you sort of find your way into it. And I suppose maybe you're interested in helping people and that helps you find your way. So no doubt life as a, as a police officer was rewarding and, and yet you, you wanted to choose a different path. So what was it about that career that ultimately you, you still wanted to go join the FBI? Yeah, you know, um, negative stuff. Uh, negative stuff has always led to better things for me, every single time. So my first year as a cop was phenomenal. I had, had a ball. Was in a, uh, I was in a high crime area, a lot of street crime, uh, chasing bad guys, lot of, lots of bad guys running on a regular basis. <laughs> and nothing better than catching a bad guy who don't want to get caught. <laughs> um, and then, you know, a year in, they shift me to residential area. Now, this is a different kind of law enforcement. A lot more patience is required. I'm not an extraordinarily patient guy. I'm not an extraordinarily detailed guy. That's just a different set of parameters. And so I get shifted to a residential area, and I'm just not enjoying it as much. I, I get on the list for the SWAT team. I get on the list before I'm technically eligible, and the lieutenant colonel will not break the eligibility rules under no circumstances. So at the same time, um, my dad uh, is who's just finished paying for a college degree. And I go out and I get a job that does not require a college degree. Like if my kid would have done that to me, I'd want my money back for the college degree. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? I just paid for four years of college and you go out and get something that doesn't need college. He reconciled himself that I wasn't going to leave, leave law enforcement. So he figured, you know, kick it up a notch, go federal. And he, like me, I, no idea the federal alphabet. I don't know the FBI from the DEA from the FDA. I mean, I don't know nothing from nothing. He's got a buddy that's a Secret Service agent. And I talked to the guy on the phone and the Secret Service guy says, you know, I travel all over the world with the service. I was, I'd never been out of Iowa at that point in time. I, you know, going to another state was a big deal to me. Crossing a river to go to Illinois was a big deal. And I thought to myself, Somebody paid you to travel all over the world? That sounds cool. Uh, serendipity, the Secret Service is not hiring because that's why I went first, but the FBI is. 
I thought, you know, one federal agency from another put in for the FBI and, and it, it was one of the best things that it was the best thing that ever happened to me after that point in time in my life. Yeah. So, you know, I've got similar stories. I was going to join the Marines and then I sat around and waited for a couple of years right after 9-11, you know, and I had no idea about the military, nothing, right? I just said, hey, you know, I, I went to college. I, I did pretty well. I can, I can do some push-ups. They should definitely take me. And, you know, the, the truth is, is that the, the line was a mile out the door, right? Everyone wow. wanted to join because it yeah. was right after 9-11, right? And so, right. you know, I think one of the themes of your, your career has been persistence though. I mean, you joined the FBI, did they just give you the spot of, of negotiator? Did it just come naturally? They said, hey, pretty please with sugar on top, do this cool job. Persistence and uh, here's a tweak. Never take advice from somebody you wouldn't trade places with. Like don't look for mentors and be careful who you would listen to. Like, no, they don't hand you that job. As a matter of fact, I go present myself to the woman running the team in New York. And kind of go, ta-da, because uh, I'm quite taken with myself, right? I'm in my late 20s. I'm, a, I'm an FBI agent. You know, I got into the bureau early. I was the second youngest guy in my class. For a while, I had the top scores in my class. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. And she literally looks at me and she says, everybody wants to be a negotiator. What do you got? What do you bring it to the table? I know you're a cop. Were you, were you a negotiator there? I'm like, no. You got a degree in psychology? No. You got any experience whatsoever, anything at all that resembles this at all? No. She says, well, you can't do it. Go away. I, well, uh, uh, that can't be the case. You know, so I literally, what do I have to do? What, what advice can you give me? I didn't say it that nice, but I said, there's got to be something. She said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now you until you've done that, go away. Most people are taking advice from the wrong people. It's most, you know, free advice is usually worth what it costs. A person who could tell you what to do ain't going to tell you because they're waiting for you to ask. But if you ask the right person, you better do what they say. She recently told me through the course of her career, she gave that piece of advice out to literally a thousand people and two of us took it. So what kind of a competitive advantage does that give you if instead of asking to be mentored, you go to somebody who's doing what you want to do? and say, what do I need to do? And then you actually do it. It's huge. You know, you say, don't, don't go seeking mentors out. I mean, I'm sure you no. had, you had some though. How, how do you find a mentor then? Well, the, this exact process, because it's also how I got into the bureau, because now once they've given you advice, if you follow it, their reputation is at stake and they will start to plow the ground for you. Because if you fail on their advice, it's their failure. Now, what do you want from a mentor? You want a mentor to give you good advice, actual good advice. And you also really want your mentor to run some interference for you. And nobody's going to run interference for you like somebody whose advice you're following. Amy ran interference for me as a hostage negotiator for the rest of my career in many ways that I had no idea she was doing it for me at the time. When I got ready to apply for the FBI, I, I went to an agent that I knew. I said, what do I do? He says, go out. As a veteran agent I know in Kansas City, go sit down and talk to him about what you should do. I, I meet this guy. I sit down. He says, I'm on the interview panel for agents, which means if we hadn't spoken, 
I would probably be on your panel since we know each other. I'd ha- they're going to disqualify me. But here's what we look for. He says, how conversant are you in current events? And I said, what is me knowing what's in the headline? How's that going to help me arrest a burglar or a bank robber or a guy who's got a warrant? That's not going to help me at all. So I got to tell you something. I got no real use for headlines because it doesn't help me do my job. And he said, well, we're going to look for you to know something about current events. So you need to go out and start paying attention to current events, whether you think it's going to help you or not, because we're going to ask you. He says, what do you like to do for entertainment? I go, I like movies. He goes, okay, why? I said, how the hell do I know? I I like movies. What do I got to explain that for? He says, well, we're going to ask you that too. And you better be able to have an answer. So lo and behold, when I sit down for my panel, he's sitting on the panel. And they asked me the questions that he asked. And I got answers. Now, I pull my file a year into the being an FBI agent because I want to read the evals from my interview panel. And I am embarrassed at how high they are. Now, in hindsight, I got one of two choices. If I hadn't followed this guy's advice, he would have slaughtered me on the ratings. I would still be in Kansas City complaining about how the FBI was unfair and they never hired me. But because I followed his advice, now he's on the line. And I got embarrassingly high ratings, which I probably did not deserve because I went to a guy, I asked what I should do, I did it, and now he's on the line with me. So let's talk about the four-letter F word. Is that fair? (laughs) Is that fair what you did? Well, yes. And here's why. In an organization like the FBI, they are looking for people that are smart enough to follow good advice. They know that nobody knows how to do everything. And we actually, as a veteran agent, we hated it when new agents would shop opinions. We called it opinion shopping. They're going to walk around and they're going to ask veterans what to do. And they're not going to do it until they run across somebody that tells them to do what they're already doing. And then they're not going to change. So most veteran agents will not give advice unless they know for sure that who's asking them is not an opinion shopper because they don't want to waste their time giving advice to somebody who's not going to follow it. So critical issue in my getting, getting ahead of other people, and I've ended up getting ahead no matter where I've gone, is because I've gone to the top performers and it said, what are you doing? And then nearly without question, I'm satisfied that they're getting the results that I want to get and I'll just do it. I mentioned the four letter F word because it's one of those <laughs> lessons that you really instilled in, in our class. If, if you ask someone is, or you use the word fair. Yeah. It's, it, it elicits a lot of emotional responses, yeah. which, which leads me to kind of the other, one of the other lessons, which was the operating assumption of your class is people are not rational. We're, we're highly emotionally charged. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, it, that's, that's basically the, the operating foundational premise of, of your book, which kind of goes against a lot of what had been taught. Yeah, well, and, and you went through the class really in, in some of the earlier days, which was before we now have the neuroscience data that we have the back set up. Like, there's no such thing as emotional neutral. There's no such thing as a time when you're not emotional. Neuroscience back set up. Our thought patterns 
every thought that we have either begins or goes through something in our head called the limbic system and something called the amygdala. And thoughts are either injected with emotions or emotions are added to. And the only time that the limbic system is not interacting with your thought pattern is when you're dead. I mean, it's actually interacting with your thought pattern when you're asleep. So there is no emotional neutral. And, you know, the funny thing, too, is people want to claim that they're rational. Well, you ask them how to do business and they say, well, we make our value proposition to the other side. You know, we pitch gain. Well, if you're doing that, you're actually trying to capitalize on positive emotions. So it's kind of funny to hear somebody explain to me how rational they are and, in fact, outline a strategy that's all emotion. It's just a narrow strategy and it's not nearly as effective as they could be. All right. Before we time warp to sort of the business side, I've heard a lot of your stories. I've read your book multiple times. I cannot recommend it highly enough. You've got lots of stories. What would you say is your, your, the story you'd be most excited to talk about now that kind of illustrates what life was like as a hostage negotiator in the FBI? Well, um, a story of a failure. I mean, it, it taught us, we learned so much and hostages got killed and lots of others got saved because of what we learned. It was the second major kidnapping I worked in the Philippines. First kidnapping, monstrous success. We orchestrated the, an environment where our hostage walked away, just walked away, left the other side in shambles, um, almost destroyed their organization. And when it was over, the lead negotiator for the bad guys called the negotiator I was coaching to congratulate him on how good he was at negotiating. So what year is this, Chris? This was, uh, the end of that first case was, in uh, the spring of 2001. So we, we finished that up. Uh, Al-Qaeda related group, uh, the Islamic insurgents in the south of the Philippines, you know, some would just say that they're more described as a street gang in the jungle, but they do have Islamic beliefs and they are affiliated with the Islamic uh, extremists of the day. So then we roll into the next kidnapping and it is just a train wreck from beginning to end. Uh, the Philippine government is, you know, not dealing with us on the up and up. You know, they're, they're keeping stuff from us. A different negotiator from the previous guy. Previous guy was ridiculously successful. Why would they want another successful guy? <laughs> they wouldn't. So they, they put a drunk in place as a principal negotiator who's missing in action, half, in a, half drunk, half the time. He's supposed to record every phone call with the bad guys would show up two hours late, having already taken the call, having not recorded it, and being half drunk. I mean, just an absolute mess. But, uh, hostages are getting killed early on. American gets killed early on. They go on a killing spree in the South. We have every reason to believe that the uh, corrupt elements of the military are buying them off along the way. I mean, just, and then ultimately it ends 13 months later with a botched rescue attempt. Two out of three of the remaining hostages are killed the last three remaining, one Filipina and two Americans. Friendly fire, two out of three are killed. So this is the, the Abu Sayyaf, the, the Burnham case. Abu right? Sayyaf, Burnham Sabero case, yeah. Yeah, so you know they, they taught that case in my training, Special Forces Qualification Course. And yeah. you know it was coming from the, the other side of how to work with the partner force 
And just to kind of elaborate on how broad the team is that you were a part of, and you weren't, you're not the sole decision maker in all of this. You know, you have post 9-11 terrorism alerts. Oh, you're linked to Al-Qaeda some way, somehow. Great. Got it. It's just going to heighten stuff. And then, you know, the, the special forces teams that were working with our partners in the Philippines, that's its own challenge. So the, the thing that they did stress in the training was how successful the, the Burnhams were at garnering the respect of their captors, though. By, oh, I was insane, yeah. By dogmatically sticking to their religious beliefs yep. and, and just not compromising in any way on that. And interestingly enough, that earns you some respect. Like uh, Martin Burnham, could, who, who got, ultimately got killed, he probably could have been a guest instructor at SEER training, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. His, and he, had, he was so effective with them. You know, I, I used to, when I taught hostage survival, I referred to it as Martinizing. What's Martinizing mean? You know, because he was an American uh, Caucasian male, that meant that he, he, as a male, he was a threat to the, his captors anyway, let alone the fact that he was at least a head taller than all of them. He's bigger than all of them. So what do they got to do? They come, they come to him every night, they chain him to a tree. The first night they chain him to a tree, he looks him in the eyes and he says, thank you. And they laugh in his face. They ridicule him for saying thank you. His unrelenting, respectful demeanor to all people. His wife, Gracia, tells us that by the time that they're a month. And so she would ultimately survive, just to kind of catch people up on the story. Uh, Gr Gracia survives. Got, got an outbreak from Gracia a number of times. They would, they, a month into this unrelenting respect and unrelenting sticking to his own principles. When they come to train him, chain him to the tree, they would switch from ridiculing him to apologizing to him for doing it and referring to him as Mr. Martin at all times. That ends up impacting the way the two of them were treated for the entire duration of the captivity. The one thing that was really tough about the entire case was they so won the respect of their captors that the real threat to them, they, they, the, their captors were never going to kill them. They would die of disease and exposure, and they might potentially die in a botched rescue attempt, but we end up getting a dilemma because we're assessing the risk of threat from the captors to being low. We don't know why, but since they were relentlessly respectful, not disrespectful to the Islamic captors and stuck to their religion and their, all their principles, ultimately their captors couldn't kill them. So what are your, let's go behind the scenes with you on that case, right? I mean, I know you have a challenging partner that you're working with. What, what are your conditions like? Where are you in your career? Where are you in your sort of development of, you know, cause you're mastering your trade at all times. It doesn't, it's not something you wake up one day and you just got all the answers and you, you come down the mountain like Moses and you just proclaim them, right? It's, it's more just continual sharpening your blade. So what was it like your daily life in that process as you list this out as the place where you made the most mistakes or, you know, that you wish had gone a lot differently? Well, um, we, a uh, strong team game constantly, constantly got a strong team game. What does that mean? You know, I don't put a response to any of the bad guys at any time that I haven't bounced off my colleagues. You know, we're constantly assessing. I get ready to send out a, uh, you know, text message to, to have our negotiator sent to them. 
and I and I go like, look, am, am I off base here? Am I wrong? You know, what do you think of this? The team game is paramount. And the team is not there to support you. You're there to support the team. We had to learn that the hard way really in my company now because you know, we say you got to be a team player. Well, some people want you to, they say, I'm a team player. My team better support me. Well, that's not a team player. That's a diva. You know, do you support the team? Um, do you listen to them? Are you, are you willing to be corrected by them? Are you using them to help you get smarter? And so every day we're up at, we're up at dawn. Bad guys are up at dawn in the jungle. You know, it's sunrise to sunset. No matter what you did the night before, you better be rock and roll before the sun comes up. Because they roll over and they're, they're making demands five minutes after sunrise. So where are you staying this whole time? Yeah, you can, you can take a call anywhere. We happen to be in Manila. We're operating out of Manila. There were times when we went to the south, closer to the action, but it, it helped us in no way, shape, or form to get closer. As long as we got solid comms, we're in Manila. We're in a hotel in Manila. And we're up in the morning before everybody else is. Uh, we're letting off steam every night. Uh, you let off steam all you want, as long as you're up before the bad guys are. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite stories, where uh, Metro Manila has also got rural areas in the middle of Metro Manila. So we're, we're in this we're in this five star hotel, government contract. We're on a balcony. There's a rural area next to us, and the sun's getting ready to come up. And there are three roosters crowing back and forth across this rural area. You know, they're like, "I'm the bigger rooster." No, I'm the bigger rooster. You know, they're crowing at each other. I'm, a, I'm there with a real New York guy, 17 year guy who was an Italian kid, grew up in Brooklyn. And I, I sound like I'm from New York, but I'm from Iowa. And the other guy that I'm with is from Nebraska. And our, the New York guy, as we're sitting there listening to the roosters, am I, are we allowed to use profanity? Are you bleeping that out on the, uh, on the Anything podcast? Anything you want to say. <laughs> All good. <laughs> you know, I think I'm this badass because I spent 14 years on the streets of New York, right? And this new, the real New Yorker looks at the two of us while we're listening to the roosters and he goes, I bet you two motherfuckers are right at home right now. He turns around away and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> we look at each other and we go like, God, he just killed both of us. <laughs> hey, Chris, you, you bring up something that I, I always have found interesting in that there's a lot of internal negotiation going on before you get to like the external, the actual problem you're there for. Has that been the case in, in your experience where you have to like get your team on board with, with things before you go and, and talk to the hostage takers? Yeah. If you got any sense, it is. And if you, you know, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. We had a strong team game model. Uh, in, in the FBI, um, not every agency that has hostage negotiators plays a strong team game. It is not confined to the FBI. Like, for example, the majority of the PD, local police department, hostage negotiation teams in Texas have strong team games. Texas, as a state, uh, they got very strong negotiator associations. They, in Texas, they actually have an annual negotiation team competition. So the Texas teams across the board, strong team game. But yeah, you got you got to have a you got to have a strong team game. So what did that look like in Manila, and what went wrong, or in the Philippines, I should say? Like what what were the big lessons learned? The big lesson learned was we what we knew wasn't enough, which is gonna happen. 
you know, my boss used to always teach us, and it really took me to that second case in the Philippines to understand what it meant. We had the best chance of success. Best chance of success is not a guarantee of success. So it means some stuff is just going to be outside your control. That being said, if you hit an iceberg and if you sink, you do you double down, you go back and you review everything you did. I reviewed everything we did. And the answer came back like we did we did everything to the best of our knowledge. And my response was, all right, so we don't know enough. If we haven't learned enough from inside law enforcement, that would that was why I ended up going up the harp. I meant, all right, so if we've got if we know as much as we know inside law enforcement, that means we got to go to the outside. I started looking for places to collaborate. The Harvard guys were defined negotiations pretty much exactly the same way that we did, empathy in particular. So I went up there and I said, you know, what do you guys got? Show us. You show us yours, we'll show you ours. And we started to raise the level of our game to a higher level as soon as we started going outside of our realm of knowledge to get better. So I never thought about it like that. And and I've, you know, the other co-host who we had on here is, is Rich, right? And one of the missions he's talked about that was not a success, shall we say, was Eagle Claw, right? The botched uh, hostage rescue into Iran. And ah. you know, maybe there, there was a lot going on at that time that we just weren't quite ready for. I mean, on the aircraft side, on the you know, just the way that that the military was organized, it led to a lot of things that ultimately made us better. But in in that moment, it's just a really excruciatingly painful thing to go through, right? Because you've got people on the front lines that are sacrificing and serving yeah. in, in massive ways. And in, in that case, with their lives, just like in the, the Burnham case, you know, people paid with their lives. And how do you kind of deal with that in the moment when it's that big of a failure in your eyes? Yeah, well, because you're, you know, I, I know you like you're this guy that's you're going to solve the problem. You're, you know, you're you're good at being good at stuff. You're going to figure it out, and it's going to go your way. And then here you are presented with this big failure, just staring staring you right in the face. Yeah, you can get caught up in that abyss if you're going to feel self centered and sorry for yourself. I mean, if if you survive, then whatever. However, you got scarred, everybody else got it worse. Everybody else got it worse than you did. And I can remember when, when I got the call at five o'clock in the morning about the botched rescue attempt, I mean, that is seared into my brain. And the way the bad news was delivered to me and then the way I subsequently delivered the bad news. So where were you? I was in D.C. at the time. We had uh, the way we were operating that case, either myself or my partner were going to be was going to be in country all the time. And it was my rotation out. I had overall uh, oversight, if you will, of the negotiation strategy. And as long as it was being implemented at my direction, at my team's direction, I could be in D.C. So I'm in D.C., you know, <laughs> on the boat that you and I went drinking on. Um, that was where I was living at the time. Phone rings at five o'clock in the morning. I got the textbook delivery from a hostage negotiator named Kevin Rust, who's a superstar. Here's how you deliver bad news. Exactly the way Kevin delivered it to me. Phone rings. I pick it up. He says, I've got bad news. Martin is dead. It's a perfect way to deliver bad news. We're remarkably resilient as human beings if we're given just an instant to tighten up, to brace for the punch. 
And that's exactly what he did. He said, I got bad news. Waited about a half a second, delivered the news. And that was the way I ended up delivering news, the news myself for the rest of the day. It's quick, it's sufficient, it's humane. And then I felt bad for a long time. And then I, I all right, so how do we get better? And then ultimately what snapped me out of it, another negotiator buddy of mine, Pete Mangan, DC Metro cop, phenomenal negotiator, uh, one, one of the pillars of the community, was talking about this horrific siege that he worked where a baby got killed. Pete describes it, and Pete, Pete still struggles with that to this day, understandably so. But I remember sitting there listening to him talk about it, and he said, look, I don't know why I'm giving you guys this case study. I just, I guess I'm just relaying something bad that happened to me on a winter's day. And I was sitting in the back, and I thought, happened to you? What about the kid's mother? You know, how does she feel? And then I thought, you know what? As hostage negotiators, this ain't nothing compared to what the families go through. So it's our job to pick ourselves up and get better, period. And either you can do that or you can't. And if you can't, it's no bad on you. It just means there's something else you need to be doing. So, so to get better, your first choice was to go to academia, go to Harvard. And you talk about this in your book at the beginning about sitting down face to face. You were kind of <laughs> trapped by these uh, famous negotiation professors and they went at you and you gave them something to think about. How did, how did that experience uh, change you? Well, first of all, those guys were remarkably open to the learning at the time. So, yeah, you know, they, they, Bob Manukin, brilliant dude, you know, thought he was going to teach me a lesson in front of some other people. And not only didn't, but then his resilience was so much. He's like, okay, what, what did I, what just happened? Or what do I need to learn from it? And, you know, since this went a different way than I expected it to, you know, we got to work with these guys. We got, we got to learn what these guys have. And that, you know, that was what led to him saying like, hey, you know, you got to come up here and collaborate with us. I was lucky enough at the time when I sat down with them first, they were going through the winter negotiation workshop, which was kind of like their best effort annually is between the two semesters where you can, you get immersed. I mean, it is immersion negotiation training all day, every day for 13 days, top of your game, no time off. When you're not in class, you're, you're working and you're prepping for the next day. It's around the clock. And he offered me the opportunity to come up and be part of it. Not, and which is, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a student you know, they're, 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 that's kind of not within the rules. But they were open enough, you know, openness, open to learning. Don't, you know, don't be scared to learn from anybody. They wanted to collaborate and, and we were off to the races from that point on. You know, when I first saw your, your class come on to Georgetown's business school, it's like, oh, it's led by an FBI guy. Like he's, he's a service oriented guy. That's who I want to go learn from. And, and that's one of those things where I was hoping to relate to a professor, you're always trying to do that kind of stuff because it maybe they'll get through to you a little bit more. Maybe you got FBI stories instead of just business stories. I thought that would be really cool. What I came to understand, which Emily and I were chatting just before this started about how you've been able to bridge this kind of blue collar work ethic and, and take it to you know the hallowed halls of Harvard and Georgetown and all of these kind of higher institutions of learning and then take those lessons that you learned, you know, on the other end of a, a phone call with a lot of bad dudes over the years, plus the academia and come out with 
a blueprint for how to negotiate, how to communicate. And it's really been the way that you have built bridges has been really inspirational and informing to me. Like it is really spoken to me. And I get the sense that that, that kind of light switch went off for you a little bit when you were at Harvard yeah. and you were maybe a little intimidated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I can tell you something. They, they get some Harvard. It scared, scared me. I didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, I figured that they were far more sophisticated than I was. And that, you know, if I was just kind of kept, if I was quiet about it, you know, I wouldn't get embarrassed and then I would just pick up what I could. And, you know, I was fortunate enough. I mean, they got a phenomenal, they got a phenomenal teaching staff up there and, you know, I'm a little rough around the edges. So <laughs> after interacting with, with, with Bob Anukin, he walked me over to two of his best instructors, Sheila Heen and Doug Stone. And they're phenomenal people. And, and I just hit it off with them right away. I mean, very, they're wonderful people, upbeat, open to learning, open to collaborating. And then I did a lot. And I, you know, I did with Sheila's husband, John Richardson. They made it easy for me to, to make entry into their world. And, and I think principally because I was willing to listen to what they had to say. So how did you best kind of combine the worlds? Was there a struggle in your head that that happened or, cause I mean, you got to write a book, right? I mean, you didn't want to write a book just for students in your class, which, you know, sells a hundred copies a year that that was never your, your goal. And so how much refinement did you get through academia and through all of that to kind of describe what you kind of knew or had been living? Well, uh, the big, the biggest thing through that process was, first of all, my son was involved pretty much the entire way. And he's, he knows his stuff. I mean, he runs my company now. He's the president of my company. He knows his stuff. He's been exposed to it and been expo uh, absorbing it since he was two years old. Now, initially, I just had him there because we wanted to videotape the classes because I wanted to review my instruction. You know, the emphasis has always been the pursuit of perfection is a, is a fool's errand. You, you should always be working on getting better. And so, uh, let, you know, let's videotape the classes and we'll review them and we'll get better. So he was there as a sounding board for that. So you get, you get into the academia and you, you kind of make it up as you go along and you find your way. In. And my real issue with the way they did things at Harvard was there was almost all an emphasis on um, fake negotiations, you know, negotiation scenarios that they provided you. But they did. I like the way they analyzed them. So I thought, all right, so let's get the an analysis a little more specific, but let's put the emphasis on real negotiations. So I just, I, as, as you knew, I made it a condition of the class that you had to go out and negotiate in real life and, you know, bring the results back. And so the class, you know, that you're in, that you were in where I got a, you know, we crossed paths. I didn't know how lucky I was to, to fall into that environment, but the part-timers coming to class at night, well, they're part-time because they're working in the day, you know, they're putting a career together. They got real problems. They're taking a negotiation course because they want actual answers of stuff that works in real life. So you got a group of people that if, if uh, you got an instructor focusing on real life, you guys are all like, yeah, give me this tool and let me take it out there and see what happens. As opposed to doing the pretend negotiations help a little, but let's go out and find out what happens in the real world. That, that's exactly what people complain about academia, right? That it, right. it's hard to apply it to real life. And so that's what we were talking about earlier is that you were able to 
basically extract what was helpful from academia, the analysis, maybe some of the labeling, the categorization and things like that, and, and put it to real actual scenarios. And I think that's, it's just such a practical, simple take, but it was, it was, it's worked. What did you say at the outset? Anything that looks really simple is probably not really simple. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> probably so really hard. <laughs> so I'll tell you how, what I did specifically was I went back, you know, I'm running GORUCK out of my condo in DC while I'm at business school. Yeah, yeah. And I had this uh, post-it note and I wrote it on the fridge because we're all on the top floor. There's two bedrooms downstairs and then upstairs, there's probably 400 square feet, right? Yeah. And there's two and then there's three or four of us. And I, I wrote key to comms. So key to communication on this post-it note. I wrote empathy, validation, never ask why questions. Yeah. And, and those were just various lessons along the way, right? How to empathize with someone, even if you would spend your life trying to kill them, you know, bin Laden or, yeah. or these kinds of people. And validation, validation is the one that has gotten me the furthest in life since your class, because yeah. I'm a natural problem solver. Yeah. And I always want to solve other people's problems instead of just validating what they say. Chris, I might need to thank you for getting us back together <laughs> at this point. Because <laughs> he, after your class, he got better at this part, which I appreciate. Thank you. Hey, so there you go. I think you guys would have, would have found yourselves back together one way or another anyway. <laughs> but but if, I, if I helped in any way, that'd be one more reason why I spend less time in purgatory after this life. <laughs> And so we just took those lessons back. Never ask why questions. Because if I say, Chris, why did you do that? Yeah. Right. It's not a question. It's an accusation. Yeah. And, and so it's like the importance of language and going back to this idea. You know, I had it built up in my head that the world is a rational place. And if it's irrational, then that's what your gun is for. And, and that's just not really, that's just not really the way that, you know, that's on, on the heels of being in special forces. And, and yeah. it's, not a, it's an oversimplification, but to say, look, at a certain point, it's like in Star Wars when he's like, it's now it's time for hostile negotiations, you know, with lightsabers, <laughs> right? right. And, and, and so what I really, really helped was this idea, this foundational thing that, that people are just emotional creatures and you have to, you have to honor and respect that even because what's your goal? Do you want to be right or do you want to be married? Right. Do you want to be right or do you want to get the deal? Do you want to be right or do you want to get the job? Right. Do you want right. to listen to the people that give you advice or do you want to go, you know, idea shop around because, you know, you think that that's called networking. And, <laughs> and, and, and so these lessons were really, really so simple. And yet it takes time. It takes real time to practice them. That was one of the other right. things you would say you have to go and find yourself in a negotiation out in the town. And oh, by the way, these are happening all over, all over the place. You just have to be aware that you're in them. Right. And, and so to sort of yeah. say, how do you see the world kind of evolving now? You know, I, I took your class 10 years ago. You, you, you wrote a book, you've toured on the book, you've talked to a lot of people, you've, you, you're, you're teaching a masterclass online now. And yet here we are in the middle of COVID. And, and the world is sort of shifting around us in terms of a lot of the stuff that you taught is it's universal to me, but sometimes the platforms are changing. We're on, we're online a lot more. We're, we're looking at each other on a screen. This is audio only if you're out there, but we're looking at each other as the world is on zoom right now. 
Right. I mean, what's the what's the new playbook or what's the addendum to to never split the difference that that you would say is going on right now? Um, you know, we're using the same tools. We're, we're making a couple minor adjustments. And the real difference, though, is the time uh, when we're not in a crisis, people can get away with comfortable in a, inaction. Now, comfortable inaction still is a bad strategy and things are going to go bad slowly on you. But they'll go bad so slowly that you you it's like the boiling water analogy with the frog. You know, the water just keeps getting hotter and hotter and you're going to end up dead. It's just going to take longer. You know, in a crisis, comfortable inaction is just is just not acceptable. But people don't know for sure what to do. It's the application still of the skills of so the tactical empathy. The, you know, the, the, the only real difference is if I call you because we got to renegotiate something, I'm going to start out by saying, and we're telling people to say this, this is a shit show. This is a shit show. You don't know what the hell is going to happen tomorrow. You're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to pay your bills. And if you can pay your bills, you're worried about the people that should be paying bills to you, whether or not they're going to worry about it. This is an absolute shit show. And you don't know what to do with this stuff. That's how we teach people to start conversations now. And it's the other side is tremendously relieved. I mean, because they're like, all right, I got somebody I'm talking to right now who's aware of the environment that we're in. You know, the real problem with bad negotiation approaches. Now, you call somebody on a phone now to start a conversation and you go, how are you today? Now, that's really well intentioned. But the problem is some voice in the back of the other person's mind, they're going to say to themselves, how am I? Are you not aware that the world is locked down? Are you unaware of the fact that we're approaching Great Depression era unemployment? Are you unaware of the fact that I'm worried that if I go to the grocery store, I'm either going to catch a bug that's going to kill me or kill somebody in my family? So, you know, let's openly acknowledge the elephant in the room because it will speed things up. And we're, we're working in a team game. The team game is, is as important as it, as it ever was. A, a woman that's a founder of a startup uh, who's a friend and I'm on their advisory board, they had to liquidate their office. Like half the other companies in San Francisco right now, everybody's selling their office furniture because they're all going virtual and they're not going back to their offices, which is going to kill the commercial real estate industry in San Francisco. And the office furniture industry is getting ready to take that hit too because all this used office furniture that's still in great shape is being dumped on the market. And she's calling her vendors and saying, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to give us some life support here or we're going to die. And one guy's going batshit on her. I mean, absolutely batshit. Enough so that our normal approach to deactivate the negatives is not kind of working. I, I call, but I got a team game, right? So I call one of my colleagues and I say, this is what I'm faced with. The guy, they're not quite, we're not quite getting out of it. The guy's going batshit right now. He's going to file a lawsuit and he's not going to win the lawsuit, but it's going to interfere with her ability to get funded over the next six months. So he's got her hostage. And my buddy's response to me is on my team, Derek, he says, well, you know, the reality is we're successful 93% of the time. This might be one of the guys you got to kill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, inside, inside the team room joke stuff. <laughs> inside the team room joke, right? Or just, so, just cut your losses, right? Yeah, yeah. Cut your losses. This is going to a lawsuit whether you like it or not. But then he said, throw this in. And there's a segment of the population 
that has to be apologized to even when they're the ones who are in the wrong. There's something about the way that they're built. Because when you break your business relationship with them, to, in their view, and it, again, it's the other side's view, you're breaking a personal relationship, you're offending them deeply. And the guy on the other side of the equation here is completely in the wrong, which is why we're not the least bit afraid of a lawsuit itself, because he's going to go to court and lose. He's got no leg to stand on, and that's not going to stop him from filing. She sends the next email out, clearly, I have offended you. I apologize for that. It was like a schizophrenic that had just taken his meds. The next email back from him was tremendous relief. We completely missed how important a personal nature of the business relationship was to this guy. Far more important to him than it was to us. He was the one that was going nuts on us. So if somebody's screaming at you, you think the last thing they're doing is trying to protect the personal relationship. that They're embarrassed. They're humiliated over the loss of it. And it makes no sense whatsoever that it was an apology, a recognition of the offense taken. Doesn't matter that it was was never meant, but it was an offense taken and it changed everything. And they settled the, they settled an argument that had been raging over email for a couple of weeks, got settled in less than two hours with an apology, which I never would have thought of if I didn't believe in, in a team game. You've spent a lot of your your career talking to people on the phone. You spent, you know, a lot of time in, in my class, right? When I was learning from you, there's a lot of face-to-face. -face. Now there's a lot of Zoom calls. There's a lot of, I mean, emails are a thing. Text messages are a thing. You've got all sorts of different ways to get a hold of people. Right. What, what will people have to adapt to? These fundamentals that you bring up? Like right now, when you talk about physical cues and body language and What's what's happening with the Zoom world, the, the digital space? It is a wacky thing with the Zoom world. There was so much more unguarded body language on Zoom. There was more unguarded body language on Zoom than there would ever be in person. And the majority of the Zoom calls that you're on, there are multiple people on the other side. The only one who's even mildly thinking about their body language is their primary speaker. None of the rest of them are. I will intentionally tell a really bad joke at the beginning of our Zoom interactions when we've got multiple people on the other side, which is pretty much every one of them, because I'm looking for the people around a periphery to basically go into an epileptic fit because the joke is so bad. I mean, they would just go like, ah, you know, and, and they are all over the place. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, see? Just knocking your own books I'm, over. <laughs> I'm knocking my books over behind it. But the unguarded body language is insane on a Zoom call. We're, we're on a Zoom call and my son Brandon says to me, did you see Eric when you asked Mike that question? I thought Eric was going to throw up. Nobody's paying attention to what they're looking like if they're not the talker. So Zoom calls, there's a much richer source of body language in a Zoom call than there would ever be face-to-face. -face. Not, not to mention seeing people in their home environments. Their life is more in view, right? Yeah. It's not all buttoned up. It's not kind of sanitized in the office. It's like, this is, this is a glimpse into people's real lives. Yeah. Which is, which is cool because then, you know, you kind of should be seeing them more as human beings anyway. So you're going to get the two way empathy. We need empathy, two different directions. I think it is in fact, kicking more two way empathy into these conversations. So tell me more about that. What does that mean? Well, seeing, you know, empathy is really seeing where the other side's coming from. If, if somebody's getting upset with you, 
in their view, they got a reason to be upset. If they're upset, they it's because they feel like they're under pressure. You may not be able to see it otherwise. You might think, ah, this is a tactic. Look, sometimes somebody being upset with you is a tactic. Unquestionably, there are negotiators out there who do that as a tactic. They're in the minority. In my view, it's no more than 25%. But if you assume they're all like that, then when somebody is, is acting, quote, irrational on the other side, you know, in their view, they got a reason for that irrationality. You, you don't have to agree with it. You just have to demonstrate any recognition of it whatsoever. And a recognition of it begins to instantly build a two-way bridge. So it's it's funny because you're seeing in this chaos, there's opportunity. Oh, tremendous opportunity. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I got actually a meme sent to me by a bunch of friends and it was actually, I got it sent to me multiple times by different people. And it was, it said something like the boss was talking to someone on the Zoom call and telling them, yeah, I'm going to need you to work on this project. And kids run behind and like half naked with a cape and like, you know, some fire source. And then it says like, never mind. I see you've got your hands full. And it, it's just it, like you said, it, it brings this whole sort of human quality. You know, we've been working this kind of staggered schedule. You know, he goes to work in the morning. We kind of tag team, you know, high five. And then I go in the evening and I'm trying to, in my communications, explain this up front to people. Hey, basically, I'm kind of like offline during my normal hours. Expect, yeah. expect me to send, you know, messages to you in the evening. And for the most part, that works great. But you, like you said, you have this like, sometimes people just that aren't getting it. They're not being empathetic. They're still wondering why you can't, you know, get on a call with them at 10 o'clock. And I, I basically acquiesced to this one situation. And I said, you know, I'm going to, my kids might be, might be in the way. So you're going to have to just be okay with that, you know, up front. So yeah. I can be flexible if you can be flexible. And, and I think you're having these conversations and you the, the demands have to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you see, that's thing that everybody's getting more focused and lucky enough, we instituted in my company uh, in, inside uh, Black Swan about two years ago, we started taking coaching from a guy that teaches the entrepreneurial operating system and it gave us instant focus internally. And we were already operating virtually, communicating internally 10 times more than I ever thought would have been productive. So if, if we got forced into it now, we would be seeking ways to get focused because, yeah, you know, you don't you don't have the luxury of kind of dealing with stuff between eight and five. If you, if you got four hours to get stuff done, you got to focus and you got to drill down on that. And you got to pay attention and you're probably going to do all of it better as, as entrepreneurs. You guys are always working on getting better anyway. But I think this takes us a little bit out of, eh, you know, I don't, I got this afternoon to work on that. That that's going away. You, you, you know, you got, you got to do it when your kids are not bothering you. <laughs> so what are you, what are you focused on these days? You wrote a book. I'll say it again. Love the book. Thank you. Literally it was worth having you back on here because it forced me to reread your book again. Oh, wow. Like, cool. Oh, this is awesome. Again, it's one of those just, it's aged really well for me. And, uh, you know, that's been great. You know, I, you're on masterclass, you're, you're, you're pumping through my YouTube ads. Cause it knows how much, you know, the, the, the ghost in the machine, right. Knows, yeah, knows yeah. how much I love Chris Voss. So you're popping up through the, the YouTube ads and stuff. And thank you. Yeah. And the masterclass thing fell out of the sky. It almost didn't happen. And it has been so much better than we ever expected it to be. Yeah. So how did that fly out of the sky? I mean, what was the, cause it makes perfect sense. You see it. I mean, I saw it. I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
I, one of their business development people, I think she got it in her head that I should be on. And we actually turned them down three times and never as a tactic. You know, when I, when we turn somebody down, we say no really nicely. We tell people why. And when we turn and walk away, that's what we mean. You know, here's, here's our issue. I don't expect you to be able to solve this. We're really flattered you approach this. Have a nice life. And because we were so nice at saying no, you know, they would huddle back up internally and they'd make another approach. And then finally, I laid out some real harsh reality in their approach. And they said, David, the founder is the only guy that can waive that. And we said, cool. I don't expect to be able to get into a conversation with David. He has his reasons for his rules. Have a nice life. And the next thing we know, we're on a conference call. We're on a Zoom call with David. David Rogier, interesting dude. Ridiculously introspective, super quiet introvert. But we're like, here's a problem. And it was an IP issue. And he goes, oh, you want the Christina Aguilera clause? And I go, what's that? Well, she said, well, you know, we're interviewing her that it's likely that she would come up with a melody or a lyric while she's on camera and she's got to own that. And it's a lot of the typical Hollywood bullshit where they want to own everything that's said on camera. And I said, we cannot give up ownership of our IP. You could sell it to somebody who could turn around and compete with us with our own material. We can't do it. And he goes, oh, well, we'll give you the Christina Aguilera clause. She kept ownership of all the, anything that came up in a conversation. So now how will you do it? And we're like, cool, cool, we'll do it. <laughs> you and Christina Aguilera, that is, that's a great story. <laughs> that is just fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah. And that was, that was a great negotiation. Like, you know, and you were just being honest and upfront. Be honest and upfront and don't say no as a tactic, but don't be mean when you say no. Yeah, that's a great you know? lesson. And then people will talk about it and they're like, yeah, hey, you know, there's anybody we should be able to work something out with. It's somebody who's nice about this. And we worked it out. What are you focused on in addition to that and corporate consulting and all that stuff? Well, we're, take, we're taking a feedback from the people that are calling us for coaching. We're getting a real clear view on the environment that they're in. And then we're adapting our strategies for that. And if we get, if we get enough feedback on it, we're going like, all right, so we got to put this out as a product. You know, we got we to do some online training. We're doing a lot more online. We're figuring out what the most di digestible chunks are an hour at a time. We can't charge what we used to charge for in-person training. I mean, we were expensive in person. But how do we break this into digestible pieces so that somebody can sign up for our training? We can focus down with them. We can give them enough. They can now begin to use the skills to buy themselves some space, some operating room to charter a course for getting out of this. So we're, we're pivoting into online. We're, we're finding a tremendous appetite for people that are looking for answers and they realize that comfortable in action ain't going to get it. You know, you're going to have to pivot in a, in a dynamic environment. There's a way to get ahead, but you, you know, you got to be willing to make some mistakes. So what kind of, so in order to kind of pivot or, or go that route, I mean, I'm sure closing a deal to be on masterclass or your, your next big thing. Those are challenges, negotiations, if you will. What, what is the negotiation guru? What kind of negotiations are you facing as you sort of chart ahead? Well, um, when we're bringing value to people, 
you know, getting them to be willing to pull a trigger on spending some money to get that value. That's because uh, we get bills to pay just like everybody else. You know, we're, we're always going to over deliver. We don't make every deal. We don't rush into deals. We're not looking to deal with everybody anyway. We want to weed out the people that are trying to deal with us and take our stuff for free because there are enough people out there that are smart enough to be able to pay for what something's worth. And there are a lot of people out there that want your stuff for free. So are you seeing more on the digital side with Masterclass and, and other, I mean, your, your email newsletter, by the way, if you're out there, we'll link to it. But I, it's one of the very, very few that I'm on. I always look forward to the little snippets that you have. And I, I read your blogs religiously. It puts me in a right, the right mindset, reminders along the way. Are, are you seeing more on the, the direct-to-consumer side or are you seeing more on the business-to-business -business side right now? More on direct to consumer, and we we actually corporate co company wise, we're focused on high performers. We've evolved to focusing direct to consumer. High performers are easier to teach. Corporate culture is usually counter to developing their people. You know, there's a reason that forty percent of the Fortune 500 is going to be gone in ten years anyway. There's a lot of bad corporate culture out there. There are a lot of executives that got ahead by taking the responsibility onto themselves. Consequently, they think, well, I got my ahead on my own. I taught myself. I want to see people who will go out and teach themselves without my help. I mean, there's all kinds of nonsense out there. So we're principally focused on direct to consumer. Um, always have been. We, we prefer the top performers. All right. And then sort of final question is, what's the best advice you can give someone out there that listen to this, like what should they do in, in their lives as negotiators, which they are, whether they know it or not? You know, the validation thing that you were talking about before, it seems like a waste of time, but it's an accelerator to productive decisions, productive relationships. Hear the other side out first. Hear them out first. Find a way so that they feel heard. It's actually an accelerator to problem solving, the decision making, to everything. And it builds trust and empathy, a two-way street. It just it builds collaboration. So, you know, of all times to slow down to hear people out, however it is that you they make you make them feel validated. Summarize them, paraphrase them, but make sure that they feel heard. And all your successes are going to speed up. Chris, thanks so much for coming on Glorious Professionals. It's always awesome to chat with you, my friend. You guys are awesome. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. And unfortunately, Chris has left the digital confines of our garage. None of the, the police officers are coming to get me for all the stuff that he was uh, pr protecting from our time spent together. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, it was, it was great to chat with him, man. What'd you think? Oh, I always enjoy spending time with Chris. Um, I met him through the GORUCK event stuff. He's been a, a speaker at some of our gigs that we put on in the early days as we were still kind of working out what events we were going to do. And I got to spend some time with him down in South Florida, um, setting up for this corporate event that we put on. And it was, it was so funny going out to, out to dinner with him the night before and, and hearing some of his stories, but also, you know, you, you think like, oh gosh, is he like doing some Jedi mind trick on me? But really it's, it's all kind of very common sense, but the way he applies it is, is just next level. Yeah. And what I think about is it's not an accident 
that Chris is where he is. It took a, a career of doing this again and again and again. And he started as a cop Then he went to the FBI. He was there for 24 years. Then he got out and, and kept kind of reinventing himself, went up to Harvard, became a professor. You know, in, in the early days when he was a professor, it's not like he was, he wasn't, didn't have the penthouse suite in, you know, Manhattan or, or anything at that time. I mean, he was a, he was a government servant for a couple decades. And, you know, he just had a big dream to get out and, and write a great book and share what he had learned throughout the course of his career. And my main takeaway is that it, it was not an easy path. You, you, you know that he didn't want to choose an easy path, but he kept choosing a hard path and it's, it's worked out for him. And I just couldn't really be happier that it's, it's him. I remember, um, this is gosh, almost a decade ago, maybe a little less him telling me about that. He was doing this public speaking course and it, you know, this is the type of person who's going to continue to perfect and learn new skills to get him to the next level. You know, that this is the same kind of guy who goes to the suicide hotline because someone had told him like, Hey, you've got some good info that you need to share, but you need to get better at sharing it. And so he signed up for this course and he said he learned how to speak publicly better. Two out of a thousand people took that lady's advice. Think about that. So interestingly enough, I was having a chat with Rich the other day about socks, right? And, and everyone's got these theories about socks. So I'm smiling as Chris is talking because Rich is telling me, he's like, you know what? I've sort of given my, I've given my thoughts on boots and socks and various things. And if people want to follow that advice, then they can. And if they don't, then then they don't. And it's their loss. He's like, I know which the best ones are, right? <laughs> but he, Rich perfectly fit that mold of, he's not going to go seek out everyone in the universe to, to just pontificate about what the best socks or what the best boots are, so to say. He's, he's offered his advice and you do with it as you, as you will, right? Now, if you find the person in that position of authority or power or whatever the case may be, you want to trade places with them or they have something that you want. If they're a hostage negotiator and you want to be that and they give you this advice and they're the gatekeeper, then how about go do that? It's, it's really easy to say, I want to do this. It's a lot harder to actually go do it and, and work the phones for six months or a year or however long it takes, but he did it. And, and that's a lesson. You got to do the work. And, and clearly we've all seen the, the types that are idea shoppers and just, they're just looking, like you said, to be validated for doing very little next to nothing. This reminds me of when I was in my agency training and there was this really great kind of instructor, Bill. He had, he had the silver haired, he had been around, he had done that. And when you, when he spoke, everyone listened. And remember I got an opportunity in a smaller group exercise at one point, And I said to him, I go, what, what advice would you give to a young officer today on where to go and where to focus on? Because, you know, these huge agencies, you know, they're, they're just microcosms for the world. There's so many choices out there. There's so many different directions you can go in. Which one should I choose? And I hadn't really, I didn't know at that time. And he looked at me and he said, you know, a small station in Africa, because you will get to do everything there and you will learn so much at, at your first tour. And I took that advice and I, you know, some of it was out of my control, but the stuff that was in my control, I made sure to keep pushing in those directions. And that's what I got. And, you know, within a month of, of being in my 
first full tour station, I was, you know, an acting COS and, and with a lot of uh, responsibility and I was only 26. That's the big boss at the embassy yeah. for the agency. So. It, it was kind of crazy, but it just it proved his point that you can, you can do a lot really quickly as a young person and, and, you know, fail fast and learn, learn a lot. So the narrative at the end, it reads as a bio, here's your CV. You, you did this, you did that. It, it looks almost like a straight line somehow, but there's a lot of dots in the middle and it's really easy to want to cut those out. But everyone that we keep talking to, I mean, sure, we don't have time to sit and chat about someone's entire life. I wish with Chris that we did, frankly, but there's so many dots in the middle and it's just such a consistent theme that we hear. It's, yeah, we can talk about this story, but there's 10 other steps that, that led me to get there. And that's the part about doing the work. There, you, you can't cut corners it just, it doesn't work like that. And if it does, it's like when lightning strikes, count your, count your blessings, but that's not going to happen again. So chatting with Chris brought back a lot of old memories. I mean, he has, he has a lot of dirt on me. I would, I would show up. I, so I was going through business school and I would, I was, uh, also starting go rock and you know, life was stressful. I skipped a lot of school back then. Cause I had work to do legitimate work with go rock or I was leading events on the weekends and tired you know, like, like a human being. I, I never missed one of Chris's classes. And he would say later, and he was absolutely right, that this trick that I would employ was the first question of the class, I would always raise my hand, right? No matter what the question was, because the harder questions are all going to come later, right? And so I would raise my hand so that I had never done the reading, by the way. So I would skim it as best as I could. And then he'd answer the, or ask the first question and I'd give some answer that was close enough, really general. And then they'd try to, you know, yeah, it was so, so, and then they would, you know, get more specific and more specific. Well, he'd already called on me. So of course he's going to focus on someone else. That's probably the least incriminating story that, that Chris has on me, but he he's enjoyed telling that a couple of times over, over the years. And, and he was right. The point is I'm not super proud about cutting those those corners all the time. I, I really got a ton out of my time with, with Chris. I mean, I, I say this all the time, math, English, and the lessons that I've learned from Chris Voss. Those are things that I use every single day of my life. And so sometimes it's read a book. That's great. Reading a book is only the starting line here though. You, you've got to actually do some introspection and say, how can I apply these and keep getting better at them? Right. We were joking with him also about, you know, he's about to have his first grandkid and we're, we're really looking forward to the new book on negotiating with kids. Right. And he sort of chuckled a little bit, but you know, you have to keep practicing stuff. He is a type of person that does go back and learns more and is always going through that as, as part of his team. So it was awesome. I, I could probably ramble on forever about him. I'll, I'll stop. I, he has, my and our just strongest endorsement for everything that he's doing. Please go follow his stuff. Thank you so much for your time.